Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, part one of a conversation with Atlanta Police Chief Rodney Bryant. He explains the department's revised policy regarding police chases. The officer must know that the individual driving that car committed that crime and they committed that crime in a reasonable time. That's coming up later in the program. But first, we'll begin with this. Our providers across the state have administered 1 million COVID-19 doses in the state of Georgia. Additionally, we believe that tonight we'll also have crossed over the 500,000 seniors who will have received their first shot. These are certainly two big encouraging milestones against our fight against COVID-19, but we know that we cannot rest on our laurels. And that's Georgia Governor Brian Kemp at a press conference while outside a vaccination site in Cobb County earlier today. Now, the governor says the state's allocation of vaccines still does not meet the demand. Kemp added he does not see the state moving into phase 2A in the near future. And Georgia Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey addressed the spread of the COVID-19 variants, those two new variants. Currently, 23 cases have been detected here in Georgia, but the number is likely higher. These variants are of concern, but I want to make sure that everyone understands that these variants, we have a kind of a limited surveillance system for them at the current time. We've been seeing these variants largely from CVS sites because that's who is sending them to be tested. We have relatively little other variants being tested and actually the ability to test this genetic makeup actually takes a week. So there's a delay in getting that information back. Now, at the time of the state's press conference, there was a press briefing by the White House COVID-19 response team and other public health officials. Jeffrey Zeitz is the White House coronavirus coordinator. First, the federal government is expediting financial support to bolster community vaccination sites nationwide, including in states like Georgia, North Carolina, and Wisconsin. As of today, FEMA has provided more than $1.7 billion dollars to 27 states, localities, tribes, and territories. This funding covers critical steps in the vaccination process, including transportation and storage equipment, supplies needed to administer vaccines, and safety equipment like PPE and masks. Now, we did reach out to the governor's office to get confirmation that the federal government was sending that money. As Mr. Zeitz mentioned, we have yet to hear back. Now, here in Georgia, the newly reported COVID-19 cases, well, they are on the decline. In total, 755,412 cases have been confirmed here in the state, and 50,685 have been hospitalized. And of those, we know 8,439 were ICU admissions 
And also, sadly, 12,772 Georgians have died due to the virus. This is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And as these new reported cases in Georgia are continuing to drop, some schools in the metro area are planning to slowly phase in more in-class instruction. Coming up in just a moment, a conversation about COVID-19 safety in the Atlanta Public Schools District, as I'll be joined by the superintendent, Dr. Lisa Herring. Now, in other news, a former Atlanta City Council member is making a run to return to the council. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, former mayoral candidate and council member Mary Norwood says she's running again for an open seat on the council. Now, this seat is the District 8 seat currently held by J.P. Mazakite, who will not seek re-election. In a statement, Norwood said she will focus on public safety and the repair of city infrastructure, such as streets and sidewalks. Expect more announcements soon. This is going to be fun. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Findings from research reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association reveals there's, quote, little evidence that schools have contributed meaningful to increased community transmission, of course, talking about the coronavirus. Also, it suggested with strict protocols in place, schools could open and the risk for contracting the virus were low and even spreading. And as we know in this area, each local district has approached reopening differently. Schools in Clayton and DeKalb remain online only, citing a rise in cases this winter. Meanwhile, last week, Atlanta Public Schools brought some younger students back into the classroom. Now, as each district navigates through all this, we're going to begin a series of conversations with local superintendents on the steps they're taking to keep students and staff safe. And if you're wondering why we're doing this, well, we do it because, honestly, you all email us and tell us to do it. Y'all are producers. Y'all don't get paid, but y'all are producers, and we love that. So we begin with APS Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring. Superintendent Herring, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hi, Rose. Thank you for the opportunity. Always good to be able to connect with you. You know, on the way to work last week, I passed an APS school. I, I won't mention it because then folks know where I live. And I saw some little ones heading into the school building. They were wearing their mask. Uh, did you visit any of those schools? I visited many of those schools and still continue to visit them. Um, uh, and, and so I'll, I'll try to do a shout out to a few of them, but I hate that if I say something and, and, and I leave them out. Mm-hmm. But certainly whether that was Perkinson or Finch or M. Agnes Jones, Brandon uh, e., um, e. Rivers, uh, uh, Garden Hills, uh, we, we were doing our very best to uh, make certain that we were just as um, visible as, as the children were in our staff uh, during a very anxious and curious time for all of us with the children returning back. Did the kids have questions? Did they ask you any questions at all as related to the virus or, or just returning to schools? So that age group was our pre-K through second grade mm-hmm. and our special um, special education students. Uh, no, uh, you know, they're the smallest of our groups. I would argue the most vulnerable in, in many ways. Um, and so even saying to them who I am is kind of a smile and, oh, okay, hey. <laughs> um, but here's what did stand out. Um, I asked them perhaps more questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were already comfortable with being able to navigate uh, their devices. Even inside the classroom, they still have their devices in front of them. But it was very clear that they have been learning. Um, you could see the excitement, though, about being inside the brick and mortar. Were there 
Was there anything that you cited? You don't have to mention the school if you don't want to, but was there anything that you saw that made have uh, said, you know what, maybe we ought to rethink how we're doing this, if it was a process in terms of just leaving the classrooms, going to lunch or, or what have you? Did you see anything that maybe raised an eyebrow? You know, if, if I could give a very candid answer to that, nothing that made me rethink our decision, mm-hmm. but a lot of what I saw made me think about how will we look moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can't, none of us can call it as it relates to the length of this pandemic, but uh, assuming that there will still be the need to make virtual an option and be able to coexist in both virtual and face-to-face, mm-hmm. I thought uh, long and hard, and I still continue to work with my team around how do we prepare for what schooling in the future will look like. Now, let's get some clarity here, Superintendent Herring, on which grades you mentioned pre-K and and second grade. So just get some clarity for our listeners on which grades currently are are in class, in in, in class instruction or have the option, rather. Yes. So let me say that carefully and and clearly. Our pre-K through second and special education students returned. They returned January 25th, so they, they represented, the, represented the first phase in. Um, and so now, uh, starting Monday, uh, February 8th, grades 3 through 5 will now return. They will be folded into uh, that, that group. And then Tuesday, February 16th, uh, grades 6 through 12 will return. And again, I want to be clear mm-hmm. when I say they will return, this represents uh, the 30% of our overall population that elected to do face-to-face option. So there are no schools at full capacity. That's just the percentage of, uh, that represents the percentage of families who elected to do face-to-face in this window. And in terms of your educators and your support staff, again, for clarity, is this a mandate that they return to the school buildings if they are instructing one of those grades or what's the process here? Great. And the, really the question is, what's the process for any employee? If there is an existing pre-existing or newly existing health issue or they are a caregiver or they have other out, uh, unique circumstances, telework remains and has been an option. Uh, We've done our our best in our due diligence to ensure that employees who have that level of need uh, have been able to utilize that. And so there are certainly uh, a number of employees who are utilizing telework and their supervisors, whether those are principals or district staff, are working with them to ensure that there's a way to still maintain their level of service. Otherwise, there was there is the expectation that we are at work. The expectation that they are at work. So, again, it's not it's not a mandate. No, that is a mandate. That yes, is a mandate. We are, at, we are working. Yes, yes, ma'am. We are working. Are they allowed to... Su- have, Go ahead. Mm-hmm, unless they've uh, had telework approval or they're out on FMLA or, or otherwise, uh, individuals are working. Yes. What's the process for telework approval? Is that a health, some type of health waiver that they have to submit or... or What's that process? So there's several, several circumstances mm-hmm. I say, that do have to be able to identify uh, with the doctor's, um, with the doctor's uh, signature or verification, whether they have a health issue. They could be a caregiver uh, for someone who has a severe health issue, which requires us to then also take heed to their need to not be uh, at risk. And so that protocol does include completing that paperwork, having uh, the health, appropriate health, uh, uh, professional complete that paperwork, submit that. There is a time frame for that to be submitted so that there is also enough time for there to be a plan um, to have an alternative to that telework um, space. In terms of concerns from educators and support staff um, and 
also how the district is assessing educators and staff who, as you mentioned, or needed approval, telework approval. Uh, what was the process for the district to make sure y'all had a fair, what you consider a fair process, at least through the executive lens here? Well, let me just speak to what this whole experience has included. Um, you know, um, in talking with superintendent peers across the country and of course across the metro area and the state, we've all engaged in how have we navigated, um, you use the word fair, but the most uh, fair and appropriate way or means in which we can use data to drive decisions, not just around opening, but around providing support for our staff in a space we've not been in before. In Atlanta Public Schools, we've certainly relied on surveys to engage and secure feedback early on. Uh, although we are open, we opened in January, we started and planned on, as you might recall, to do that in October. Mm -hmm. Building up to that October window, we did do a series of surveys with staff. Um, in our district staff, as well as our teaching staff, as well as secure the data that would give us a sense of the declaration of intent to return. In addition to that, we've had an advisory task force and we've met with labor union leaders. I have teacher advisory, I have principal advisory group. Uh, they've all been a part of giving us feedback to make certain that we would take into consideration um, the multiple roles that uh, make our organization what it is and the data that we received from those engagements. And we continue, by the way, to engage with them, help to shape and form um, many of our decisions. From a health standpoint, though, mm -hmm. our health advisory um, uh, task force played a critical role in us moving from one decision point to the next. And Superintendent Herring, what can you share in terms of, to your knowledge, COVID-19 cases among staff and students? I know for a while you all were very good about giving updates in terms of the cases that you all could confirm. What's the latest there? Well, we've made a COVID-19 data dashboard available. Any any individual who wants to know what's the most recent across our district can go to our www.atlantapublicschools.us uh, website and pull up uh, our, our COVID platform and they will see um, on a weekly basis any information relative to self-reported uh, COVID cases by school mm -hmm. uh, and also the number of individuals uh, who have been exposed uh, by school and location as well. And so we continue to make that data uh, face, uh, front facing uh, for Atlanta Public Schools. They can pull that up today if that's something they'd like to see. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Atlanta Public Schools Superintendent, Dr. Lisa Herring, and we're talking about plans for resuming in-person instruction. The little ones, some of the little ones have already come back to class. Now, earlier today, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky, in a press briefing, talked about safely reopen, reopening schools. Take a listen. But I also want to be clear that there is increasing uh, data to suggest that schools can safely reopen and that that safe reopening does not suggest that teachers need to be vaccinated in order to reopen safely. So while we are implementing the criteria of the advisory committee and of the state and local guidances to get vaccination across these eligible communities, I would also say that safe reopening of schools, vaccination of teachers is not a prerequisite for safe reopening of schools. So, Superintendent Herring, when you hear that from a public health official like Dr. Rochelle Walensky, I imagine this is part of when you said the data and the information that you all use in terms of making decisions. This is an example? This is uh, 
one of many examples. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to hear and acknowledge that. I will share that we still maintain our advocacy for uh, our educators to be considered as priority for access to vaccines mm-hmm. uh, or to the vaccine. We're currently in category 1B and our, our advocacy has been grounded in the movement to either uh, 1A or a level of priority consideration. Um, but I also will acknowledge that what that speaks to is the importance of effective mitigation strategies in order to be reopened. That's what was said at the onset. Mm-hmm. And that's really been tied to the pivot for Atlanta Public Schools. That's been a frequent question, how did and why did we pivot? So we know we see the community spread data, but the health experts have said to us, the most effective way to control for as best we can a spread is to have the most effective and um, well-practiced and fully implemented uh, mitigation strategies in place. And that's what we've worked very diligently to do and continue to do. And we've layered on top of that surveillance testing in Atlanta public schools. And I do want to shift for a moment and focus on now the what you all are t- you know entrusted to do, which is to educate our students. Give an assessment through your lens in terms of the good, the bad, and the challenges Still with virtual learning. I mean, we, you and I had this conversation well, over a year ago now almost about making sure those kids who needed to connect could be connected. Has that improved at all, making sure kids have the devices that they need? So that's certainly improved, Rosa. I don't want to minimize that at all. And that's a Herculean task. And Mm -hmm. we're fortunate that we've been able to provide devices and hotspots for our students and families that need them. Uh, We, you know, that wear and tear becomes a reality. That's a part of the challenge as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Atlanta Public Schools also, uh, at the start of this academic year, back in the early fall, committed to making devices uh, available one-to-one across our system. So we are receiving actually a new inventory of devices that will scale out for every student uh, uh, pre-K through 12 as we go into this next school year. That's one of the benefits, but it's also a part of the challenge. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation at length with a parent uh, yesterday that lifted some of the challenges of being what they call Zoomies. So Zoomies are the parents who are Zooming every day. Mm-hmm. They're at home with the kids. Mm-hmm. And now we have a cohort of children who are also face-to-face. Some simple challenges that we are working to work through. You know, school starts when the students are there and in the building and in the classroom. But when you're at home, you're already there and you're ready to start. And there's a pause period to that, you know, navigating for if I were talking to you now and my system was low, was my, my connection was low, I would have delayed, interrupted responses. You know, those are challenges that we try to work through with broadband use that we could control for. Mm-hmm. And I have to always acknowledge You know, the beauty of education has often been the opportunity to just physically engage, socialize. Uh, There's an app in in that right now. And so we continue to be creative around how do we fill that gap to be able to check for social emotional wellness Mm -hmm. um, and socialization in a space where a a good portion of our system, uh, a little over 60% still remain virtual. Well, and that was actually our, my ending question to you, because as you we all know, there are some things you just can't recreate in a virtual setting. Um, and how optimistic are you that uh, as the nation as a whole turns the corner on this virus, that one day districts will be back to, you know, 100 percent of kids coming to, to class? Or do you think educa- this is a forever change and you will have to always offer virtual learning? What do you think? So you are in the heart of the conversations I've had for the last several weeks since return and certainly last year as I watched this transition occur. 
I think that we will have to maintain a space for virtual engagement moving always. I think shame on us if we don't. There are, have been situations with the virtual engagement world where students are actually performing well and it's created a benefit for families and children alike in various age groups. And yet there's also the reality of depression and suicide and concerns around mental health and well-being that exist. And so we are all hungry and ready for social connection and contact and engagement. And I've always been one of the reasons why I love education is that it provides us an opportunity to do that and teach along the way. We will have to entertain what I believe will be a hybrid approach to that, where we will need to work to be creative and innovative around embracing the two and meeting students where their unique learning styles are and teachers where their, their instructional uh, uh, gifts exist and bridge that together to connect to make a new normal for, for, for schooling. And um, I'm optimistic about it while we're still pushing through the nervousness of a pandemic. And I sound like from a movie. And how you doing? <laughs> you know what? You, you picked uh, a fine time to become superintendent. <laughs> you know, I, I not am, to make light I of this because this 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 virus has been something. But I don't know of any other superintendent that you know came into a situation like this and and you were very public about that you had contracted the virus. That's what I'm asking. How are you doing? I'm well. Um, it is a day by day journey. Um, I, Lisa is as well as she can be. Uh, November and December were difficult. November hit the co- hit COVID. I lost my dad in December. I mm. uh, was reminded that we can't hug and touch like we all need to, but we're going to lead well. We're going to keep our children and our educators at the top of our of our priority. And because we are leaders, all of us are. I'm going to do as best I can to take care of myself to, to make sure we get it right for Atlanta Public Schools. And our condolences on the loss of your father. We love our daddies, don't we? Let me tell you, don't get me started. Daddy's girl. (laughs) Atlanta Public School Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And again, folks, we have reached out to many of the area superintendents. Some have... jumped at the chance to come back on the program so we we will have those for you not only this week but next week as well thank you dr herring always thank you be well you too support for wabe comes from The Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at ourgeorgiacoast.org. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Here in Atlanta, the Life School has been around for about five years. It's located in downtown Atlanta. You're going to learn more about this school's learning model in just a moment. And recently, the Life School expanded by launching, and I love this name, Zucchini's Homeschool Co-op 
in response to the needs of parents and students during the COVID-19 pandemic. So join me now to talk more about the school and, and how they're educating during this time is Michaela Streeter, the founding principal of the Life School and co-founder of the Zucchini's Homeschool Co-op, and Cabral Muhammad, a co-founder as well. Um, thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Now, I have to start with the name, Zucchinis. I love it. Before we before we tell our audience more about it, how y'all come up with this name? Were y'all in the grocery store? Yes. We, yeah. <laughs> we were. We were in the grocery store. We were actually shopping for uh, supplies to have a planning meeting because the parents are like asking us, what, what can we do? What can we do? Mm-hmm. You know, there was such a fervor around what... what uh, what the next steps were as far as educating our, our children. Um, and we just happened to be uh, in the produce section and looking around and and uh, there it was. The zucchini. Yeah, so we needed, wanted it to be cute, but we also <laughs> wanted to be have some basis in our culture and our community. So finding a squash, we were very excited about thinking about zucchinis as a name and, and the heritage that comes from mm-hmm. people of color around uh, the squash and meals and events and, and um, celebration. So I we thought it was a nice tie-in to things that we wanted to be central values. Absolutely. Well, let's, uh, let's, 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 we can focus for a moment now because I want you all just to reflect on as educators, what's it been like the last year for you all? Um, you know, educating kids, different model, which we'll get in in a moment, but during this pandemic. And, and Michaela, you can go first. Sure. So definitely switching from completely in-person to now hybrid model has been a major transition. Uh, and just supporting the families as they work through some of our students have lost relatives to COVID-19 or families have parents have lost jobs or hurt, impacted their businesses. And so we've wanted to definitely come together as a community to be able to support all of our families and then also find ways to innovate and and be agile and flexible to adapt to uh, this moment and the needs of our community so that we can continue with the high quality innovative education that we are really committed to as a school. So when we were able to um, switch from the life school to virtual, we said, all right, well, let's put some science kits together, some robotics kits so kids can still continue projects at home. Mm-hmm. Let's um, this fall look at how we can transition to hybrid so kids who can come to school can come here safely. And our parents have been amazing about really protecting this in-person space. Mm-hmm. And so if there was even a hint of a possibility of someone might have been exposed, they kept their kids at home and kept us informed. And so we haven't had any issues all year and been able to keep our doors mm-hmm. open. And then we were able to expand and offer zucchinis as a program for and a lot of younger siblings and cousins of the high schoolers to mm-hmm. have something. So our, our little the little ones didn't have to be on the computer. That's just not a, a good way for four right. and five year olds to learn. And we, we knew that. Michaela, let me ask you, how many students in the life school? I'm curious. Just in there are 50 students. I'm sorry. In the life school. 50. Okay. Five zero. Okay. And, and Cabral, let me get your thoughts just on this year as an educator. What's it been like for you? It's actually been highly personal for me because I have a student at the life school. My son, my oldest son is at the life school. My youngest son is in the Zucchini's program. And there's been a lot of like uh, anxiety and a lot of fear and a lot of worry. And so being able to kind of uh, resolve this issue for myself or address this issue for myself and also be able to help address it with other families and other parents who had similar concerns uh, was really at the heart of 
the entire zucchini's um mm-hmm. movement or push that we were we were going for um so it's been it's been highly personal That's- and um you know i really appreciate the support that miss michaela has given the families of the life school and the zucchinis program it's been really helpful michaela well let's talk about the zucchinis uh movement as as cabral just called it <laughs> uh, how did all this come about and then for our listeners sort of paint the snapshot what this involves yeah so we have um we had a number of families come to us including Cabral's family, who were looking for ways to support their younger kids. So four, five, six years old, their um, kids either closed or went completely virtual, and they just didn't want that as the way their kids were going to learn through the pandemic. They powered through last spring, but heading into a new school year, they were looking for something different and asked us what we could do. So we had some available space in our building. We're right downtown near City Hall, and actually near EPS headquarters. And so we were able to offer them space, and then help them think through how do you organize? We were hearing all about these pandemic pods that these very affluent families were offering and putting together lots of money. Um, but these families were, we, we really need something affordable, mm-hmm. manageable for our budgets as they transition through this pandemic. And also something that would still be safe for their, their families because of COVID, but also culturally that they, their our values as people and as families would be affirmed through the program. So we were able to offer them space, help them coordinate to um, plan out their curriculum and how the students would spend their day. And and they've got all sorts of like slides and swings and games and activities that really enrich their day. And how many students are in the little zucchini pods? Should I call them that? <laughs> like a, a homeschool group that meets here. So there are about 10 students mm-hmm. in zucchinis and, and we're registering more students throughout the year. Now, we have to talk safety here and measures and mm-hmm. protocols. Uh, neither one of you can take this. Uh, what are your safety protocols for, you know, throughout this pandemic? Are you all requiring COVID tests and then some type of documentation? Uh, or if there's someone who, whether it's indirectly or directly, comes in contact, do you have to shut down one of the, I mean, the pods? How's all, what's the process here? So as it is right now, what we've done is uh, we've instituted temperature screenings. So every morning uh, as parents arrive and students arrive, um, everyone gets their temperature checked. We do have uh, COVID disclosure statements that every parent and every family is required to fill out regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, We also require PPE for all of the students and all of the staff. Um, and then we, we require that ev- no students are allowed to like share food or things like that. Everyone has to bring their own stuff and it has to be contained. And then um, on our side, we've replaced all of the filters in our building um, and we routinely sterilized, like we got this huge industrial sterilization thing. So we routinely sterilize all, sterilize all of the surfaces and we've really um, updated and strengthened our cleaning measures Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't just take place once a day, but multiple times a day. And Michaela, what's unique about this curriculum for the zucchinis? Yeah, so for the zucchinis, we wanted to create something that students would love to come to school every day. And and some families have even shared that their kids, they've offered them to stay home and they're like, no, I need to get to school. (laughs) I've got projects to work on, presentations to make. And so our our day is built around really personalized custom uh, curriculum a learning experience for each student. 
So we can get to know every family and every student. What are their interests? What are their learning goals? You're not just a second grader or a preschooler. What it, where, where are you as a learner? And how can we support you in moving to the next step? And that's what's unique about having a smaller community. The second piece is we've baked in so much play and time for exploration throughout their day. We know that that's so important for healthy brain development. And so that's all throughout their day. And they have so many different ways that they um, incorporate play throughout their um, learning experience throughout the week. Um, and then the last piece is passion projects. So we want students even at four, five, six years old to explore the things that they're really excited to learn about. So students have created comic books, they created fashion designs and sewn their own clothes. Fashion? They, wow, I need those kids yeah. to come help me out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they've cooked and baked and um, done all sorts of activities. They also have um, several animals and pets that they keep, take care of. They've got snaps and bubbles, our beloved turtles. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've got noodles, the rabbit, and uh, about 200 rainbow trout. And so they're really learning to care for things outside of themselves. Um, they do yoga and learn Spanish and art. And so very dynamic, enriching experience. And then even for math and ELA and social studies, those are all um, based around um, discussions and projects and games. So there's a lot of movement and activity throughout the day. So many schools have removed or reduced recess and mm -hmm. standardized even for younger kids. And this is a time for us to be really rethinking education for our children. Mm -hmm. And so we have taken all the things that we know from research and from families and their goals and incorporated that into the program. And that's a good segue because before I let you all go, I want the listeners to learn a little bit more about the life school. Um, and Cabral, you're, you're a teacher there. I am. I am. I'm actually the lead instructor at the life school. And we, we really modeled the zucchinis experience after um, the learnings that we we were able to gain here at the life school. Mm -hmm. So a lot of project-based education, a lot of experiential, experiential education, being able to actually touch, create, to build, to taste, um, to walk different paths and figure out what it is that's uh, working for you, as opposed to just following a specific prescribed uh, pathway. Mm -hmm. Now, the life school, of course, is a fully accredited high school um, and we actually recently just graduated our, our first class mm -hmm. and we're looking to graduate our second in a few months. And we're very, very excited about that. And our students are going on to college. Our students are pursuing careers in finance, careers in uh, computer programming and coding and things like that. So right on down to the zucchinis, the kids are coding and learning to, to code robots and, and do all kind of cool stuff. And it just kind of follows this coursework that's really natural and evolving. Um, and uh, a lot of parents are like, wow, this life school is great. Kid, is there something similar for my, my younger kids? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was another opportunity there to kind of create for them. And Michaela, I've just got about 30 seconds. I want to ask you this, though. Um, based on what Cabral just said and the response from the community, does it seem like maybe y'all need to expand if you can? Oh, absolutely. We're always looking for new ways to grow and expand the program, uh, bringing in new families, trying to, we've doubled our enrollment actually every year. And so we're 
getting ready to do that again. So folks that are interested in joining should definitely reach out. Um, and other folks who have materials and supplies to share, um, we would love to connect with them as well. Partners are always welcome. And I, I want to note too that one of our priorities is um, that it's affordable. Mm -hmm. So we have these amazing high quality learning experience, but manageable. Zucchinis is $500 a month. If you had this level, you would could be three or four X so. All right. If you want a cranky 14-year-old cat, I can bring him over. <laughs> Michaela Streeter, the founding principal of the Life School and co-founder of Zucchini's Homeschool Co-op, and Cabral Muhammad, co-founder of Zucchini's Homeschool Co-op, and a science teacher at the Life School. Mm. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you. And uh, keep those Thank 200 you. trout, rainbow trout safe over there, okay? We'll bring we'll you some All right. <laughs> I'll take care. <laughs> And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Page one of the Atlanta Police Department manual reads, quote, the Atlanta Police Department places the highest value upon the preservation of life and the safety of its police officers and citizens. The methods used to enforce laws should maximize the safety of all police officers and citizens, close quote. Now, this 15-page document then outlines what APD officers must follow in terms of the pursuit policy. Now, recently the policy was changed, we thought, roughly one year after former Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields reestablished a zero-chase policy for the department. You'll learn more about that in a moment. So what are the details of the policy? Well, in part one of my conversation, Atlanta Police Chief Rodney Bryant talked about the pursuit-chase policy, but our conversation begins with learning a little more about the chief. Chief Bryant, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Before we get into that, I want our listeners to learn a little bit more about you. Let's go back a little bit. We're going to go back to 1988. Remember that year? <laughs> yes, indeed. Did you have a Jerry Curl chief? Uh, believe it or not, no. I, I didn't look much different than I do now. So I, I, I wish, but no. I, yeah. I had a lower haircut. All right. I'm just messing with you. Everybody, look, 1988, everybody had something. Uh, let's go back to that year because that's the year you joined the force. Absolutely. I, uh, I became on the police department in January of 1988. Uh, I was in between uh, being in school. I had just left Fort Valley State mm -hmm. and I was coming back home. Uh, I'd also had a break from being in the Army Reserve and uh, had ambition of always wanting to be an Atlanta police officer. So I was hired in, 19, uh, in 1988. You said you always had wanted to be a police officer. How can you recall just at what age you, that's what you knew you really wanted to do? You know, I growing up in the city of Atlanta, you, uh, I, I truly didn't. I never had any real bad experiences with uh, police. Mm -hmm. uh, and I looked upon them as someone to actually be helpful in the community. Uh, and so it was an attribute. There were attributes of police officers that I thought in line with what I would want to do by helping others. And so can't say how long mm -hmm. it had been, but I knew that it was a, a desire. And the officers in your community, the officers in your neighborhood, you all knew them. The way you're telling me, it sounds as if they were part of the community. People knew who they were. They knew who you yeah. were. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I grew up in Southwest Atlanta, and so the, the patrol officers were regulars and routinely throughout the community. Um, and then in school, we had school detectives inside our schools that we knew uh, on on by their last names as well, who were re uh, often come through the schools readily. And, uh, you know, even in elementary schools, I came up in an era of elementary schools where mm -hmm. we could uh, have Officer Friendly come out and, you know, mm -hmm. have conversations with him. So uh, my, my experiences, unlike many, uh, was not a, a negative interaction with police. The reason why I wanted you to recall the importance of the relationship with the officers in your neighborhood, because now when we think back to last summer and even before then and all the calls for racial justice and, and especially as it relates to some call it policing in communities of color, excessive police force, or for some, quite frankly, allegations of misconduct. When we talk about all that and then we talk about the breakdown and solutions, and you've been on the force for a number of years. What happened to that that relationship that officers had in the communities and neighborhoods like you just described a few moments ago? I think not only did policing change, uh, where we, the, the profession itself, uh, became even more isolated from the community that we serve. But I think historically, um, Historically, the community itself became even more uh, apprehensive of communicating with police because they had seen so much wrong over a period of time. Mm -hmm. And the profession itself never addressed it. The profession itself never uh, had those conversations and, and fixed it. And when they did, when we became, when we recognized as a profession to start getting into community policing, um, a lot of animosity and, and mistrust had built up. And the community, um, many black community, were continuously crying out and speaking out, saying that, you know, we are being mistreated. You're not uh, taking care of us the same way. You don't handle us the same way. Uh, and, it, and then you see Rodney King when it's finally a video that mm -hmm. could show something that a community had been arguing the entire time, um, everybody now takes a, a pause and say, what can you do to fix that? Mm -hmm. Some people just moved on from it. There were other agencies that recognized that we have to do something different. Uh, one of the things I'm very proud of of the city of Atlanta is historically Atlanta has always tried to get it right. I won't say that we all, we, we have, but, you know, in 1948, when we recognized that you have to have diversity on your police department because you have to be representative of the community that you serve, mm -hmm. they started there. And I think that we were one of the first agencies to start working uh, to improve upon community relations as a, as, as a department. Is it much more work to be done? Absolutely. We got a lot more work to do. Uh, but I think that's what happened is we just stopped talking to each other. And now, you know, we're in a space where with cell phone video or even body camera footage that officers are now wearing, it's right there in front for everyone to see. And Absolutely. to be fair, you know, when we're not there, 
it may be hard for some people to understand the reaction or the action of the officer. But then for others, it's very clear. I'm looking at this. I can see that this officer has done something wrong. As the chief, you know. as the chief now, and you, and maybe you've been in that situation. I don't know, but as a chief now, your leadership is so important. How do you balance that of your officers, what they're under, and then the community and maybe even elected officials or what have you? How do you balance making sure that you want to ensure that everyone's safety, as I just read coming into this segment? If that is the highest priority, that you have policies that officers will follow and that citizens understand that policy. It goes back to, um, it begins, Rose, with us having strong conversation, building a relationship with the community. And so that that community can trust the decisions that we are making. And the only reason, the only way that they can actually trust us is through a level of transparency. We have to be very transparent in the actions that we take against the citizens themselves as well as our police officers uh, and and in doing so we have to quite often recognize that it takes time for us to get into those spaces we're in a society now where everything is quick everything everyone wants everything immediately and so quickly uh, but when it comes to these level of processes uh, it, it is not as quick as you would like, uh, we have to sometimes really take our time and get this thing right. Because if we mess it up, if we, it, it, it I think it adds more to the problem when we get it wrong. Um, and so we need that time, but you can only get that time if your community trusts and believes in you. Do you need help establishing that trust? Oh, or- absolutely. Absolutely. I think that uh, the police is like in any relationship. Uh, You have to continue to work at it. And it is strengthened not just by the two parties, but sometimes it requires other people interjecting to help build and strengthen that relationship. And what I mean by that is even though the institution of the church and schools are part of the community, they bring different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that when we are all working together to move forward, it puts us in a much better space. So now we come to another policy, which is APD's pursuit policy. Yeah, I, I recognize that that policy has um, some challenges and and everyone is not on the, on the same side as it relates to it. Uh, what I'll tell you is this, I wanna clear up something that, and, And as I stated earlier, one of the things that we have to improve upon is the level of communication and transparency. Mm -hmm. There's a misnomer that there was no policy. There was a no chase policy. In all actuality, what happened was there was a chase policy. It was suspended. So there was no zero chase policy under Chief Shields? That's correct. What that really meant was there was no policy in place for a chase, hence you couldn't chase because we had no policy to address it. Um, And because that policy was suspended and being reviewed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what happened is Chief Shields uh, invited PERC, Police Executive Research Forum, to come in, take a look at the policy and come up with strong recommendations 
to see what we could do to improve upon what we had. Uh, once I got into the, uh, this seat, the policy, the PERF results came back. We took a look at it. We scrutinized it uh, for a period of time. I mean, we I think we looked at this policy and their recommendations for over a month, if not longer, before we decided that it was uh, to put their recommendations in place and then go ahead and put, allow a policy to, to uh, move forward. So for our listeners, let's sort of let's take them through this if, if possible. And if you think a scenario is the best way to relay this, then I think that that's fine. Officers right now, if they are in pursuit of someone, high speed chase, is there any criteria that they must at that time used to determine whether or not they need to continue. For our listeners, I think that they would welcome how will officers determine whether or not to engage in a high-speed pursuit? Absolutely. Great question. So one of the things that we did with this new policy is implement supervisor approval at the beginning. Uh, An officer cannot get into a chase without having his supervisor approved. The, the very uh, demographics that you established or you just spoke of are considered. What time of day? Where are, this, where are these events happening? Uh, what's the weather like? Mm. What's the crowd like? What, uh, all of those different variables must be evaluated uh, prior to even approval. But the officer has a responsibility himself to take those things into consideration as well. But I think that the other thing that we must be clear about is there are only a few reasons an officer can get into a chase. And they are the most extreme situations um, that an officer will have the ability to do so. But what makes this policy much different than the policy previously is that the officer has a uh, must know that the individual driving that car committed that crime and they committed that crime in a reasonable time uh, as opposed to what we had previously is if a car was involved in a carjack well if the car was involved in a carjacking two days ago and an officer got into a chase with that person he was authorized to chase because the vehicle was taken in a forcible felony mm-hmm. this policy only allows that officer to get into a chase if he has direct knowledge that the person driving that vehicle committed that act within a reasonable amount of time. So it changes it dramatically. And to be clear, and I use the term high speed chase, because you you can also be in pursuit of someone. The officer could see the driver do something that might have been detrimental to others on in the surrounding. Is that also part of this policy? Yeah, absolutely. So um, quite often uh, you can have a chase and, and, and the person just refused to stop. And that too constitute a chase, meaning they could be traveling the speed limit. We've been in chases where people stop at red lights and turn on their signals and they just refuse to stop. But you also have the one that you you are speaking of where people are driving at a high rate of speed. Again, all of those are evaluated, not just by the supervisor, I mean the officer themselves, but the supervisor as well. Chief, when should an officer cease the pursuit through your oh, lens? Immediate, if one, if they are in, if they, they if they are in violation of our 
uh, policy that we have put in place, if they recognize that the that someone out is in danger, uh, then they need to cease this 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 the chase mm-hmm. that they're involved in. And what about the number of patrol cars involved in the chase? Absolutely. So in our policy, we have limited that number of vehicles that are involved in the car chase. There should never be any more than three vehicles uh, at a time involved in any car chase. Chief, at any point, if there are concerns or, heavens forbid, a a tragic outcome, uh, could this policy be suspended again? Is there an outcome that could occur that this policy could be suspended and you all take another look at it? Or are you satisfied with what the research has has presented to you all and you want to keep this policy in place? We are always evaluating our policies. Um, there's no policy that we have in place that we believe is etched in stone and it is absolute concrete. So we have a review process of making sure that we are in line with what the best uh, information, the best research, um, the best technology that is, that are coming out, we continue to evaluate those. Uh, and, and absolutely, we, we believe that this is a strong policy that we have in place. But if we recognize for some reason, and, and, and that's generally what happens in, in policing, is something that you thought you uh, captured uh, may not fit the policy that was prior to this one. We thought at the time that, that that was a sound policy. We recognized that there were things that could be improved if it's suspended. We we took the recommendations, put this them in this policy, and we believe we have a sound policy now. And that is part one of my conversation with Atlanta Police Chief Rodney Bryant. Part two tomorrow, where we'll talk about more in terms of how he feels policing in certain communities should actually occur. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Y'all know he rides a bike. If you missed any of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. As well as our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.
W-A-B-E.